Hello, I'm Karen Long. You're listening to The Asterix, a production of the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards. An asterisk is a reference mark indicating an omission. Today, we're figuring out some of the holes in our knowledge with the scholar Charles King. He won an Annisfield Wolf in 2020 for Gods of the Upper Air, how a circle of renegade anthropologists reinvented race, sex, and gender in the 20th century. Jury Chair Henry Louis Gates Jr. called this group biography a quote, timely, compelling, and moving portrait of the women whose research revolutionized the way we view the world, unquote. Welcome, Charles. Thanks. It's so nice to be with you. It's so good to be with you as well. On this program, we like to get away from me and toward the art. So to that end, do you mind beginning with a bit of your writing from the start of Gods of the Upper Air? Sure, I'm happy to do that. The implications of the idea that we make our own agreed upon truths were profound. It undermined the claim that social development is linear, running from allegedly primitive societies to so-called civilized ones. It called into question some of the building blocks of political and social order, from the belief in the obviousness of race to the conviction that gender and sex are simply the same thing. The concept of race, Franz Boas believed, should be seen as a social reality, not a biological one. No different from the other deeply felt human-made dividing lines from caste to tribe to sect that snake through societies around the world. In the arena of sex, too, the lives of women and men are shaped not by fixed, exclusive sexualities, but by flexible ideas of gender, attraction, and eroticism that differ from place to place. The valuing of purity, an unsullied race, a chaste body, a nation that sprang fully formed from its ancestral soil should give way to the view validated by observation that mixing is the natural state of the world. The members of the Boaz Circle fought and argued, wrote thousands of pages of letters, spent countless nights under mosquito nets and in rain-soaked lodges, and fell in and out of love with one another. For each of them, fame, if it ever arrived, was edged with infamy. Their careers became bywords for licentiousness and crudity, or for the batty idea that Americans might not have created the greatest country that has ever existed. They were dismissed from jobs, monitored by the FBI, hounded in the press, all for making the simple suggestion that the only scientific way to study human societies was to treat them all as parts of one undivided humanity. A century ago in jungles and on ice flows in pueblos and on suburban patios, this band of outsiders began to unearth a dizzying truth that shapes our public and private lives even today. They discovered that manners do not, in fact, maketh man. It's the other way around. Bravo. Your lucidity is right up there. You know, it's gorgeous writing and it makes the ideas um, come alive. I love that the wellspring of this is the awkward failure to launch Franz Boas, who washed up at Columbia in his 40s. If I'd been his mom, I would have been in dismay. This is true of so many of the, the great thinkers and figures in 
in world history that you know we know the end of the story <laughs> we, we want them all always all ready to be established and geniuses and fully formed but of course they were children they were um, teenagers they were ne'er-do-wells at some point in their in their life and you know in in the case of Franz Boas born in what would later become Germany and then eventually um, by the 1880s moved um, to the United States trying to make a career as an amateur adventurer or part-time what we would now call anthropologist although he it took him some time to discover that word um, and bouncing around as an editorial assistant at Science Magazine and um, then working on the Chicago World's Fair and you know one thing after the next before finally getting uh, getting a job as a part-time lecturer at Columbia and from there his career uh, takes takes off. And one of the other confluences that is striking from Gods of the Upper Air is the class at Barnard was able to cross Broadway and hear his lectures. And in that were the seeds of the four women that Dr. Gates spoke of. Yeah. Well, in fact, it was kind of the other way around. Boaz had to go across Broadway to Barnard. <laughs> um, he, um, Boaz was um, a, a great controversialist. I mean, he, 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 he was a person that people tended to have strong opinions about, often in the negative, uh, because he would say very controversial things, like during the First World War, um, he couldn't quite understand why the United States wanted to support British imperialism, but not German imperialism. And as, also as, you know, someone who had grown up in a German speaking um, environment and was part of this very large German diaspora in the United States at the time that was hounded and pursued by uh, the police and and um, American officials um, as, you know, alleged spies and, and informants during the First World War. Boaz couldn't quite understand why any of this made sense. And he would write letters to the editor of the New York Times and say um, uh, scandalous things like that to, to his students. And so the university fathers at Columbia decided he could do less damage if he would go across the street um, and teach at the women's college, uh, Columbia Barnard, rather than corrupt the young men who would go on to, you know, lead American foreign policy and America's great businesses and so forth. Um, but that turned out the fact that he had a seminar room, and the fact that he had Barnard, and that the fact that he had um, some kind of world upending ideas, uh, that I think especially to a group of ambitious, talented, brilliant young women at the beginning of the 20th century seemed to explain their own lives and predicaments. Um, all of that turned out to be the making of American social science. I mean, not to put too um, grand a face on it, but it really did because Boaz in his lectures and, and, and seminars in suggesting that it was not one's own failing that determined one's lot in life, but some combination of talent and circumstance with a big emphasis on the latter. Um, that there are different societies where women or people of color, to use a, a modern term, or people we would now call disabled, have you know, different roles in different societies, that these people are not considered to be backward or broken, um, or in the case of women, le naturally less able than men in every society of which we have knowledge. And on the contrary, the people who have 
power, who seemed the natural leaders in the society at that place in that, that time, might not be so viewed um, if we change uh, circumstance. And so a lot of these things that we kind of think of as what it means to be a progressive world aware person now, that we we're aware of a thing called structure and the way in which structure determines outcomes in life or in society or in politics. All of this was new and revolutionary and explained not only the world as these women found it, but also in many cases, their own lives. One of the things you like to say comes from this group of thinkers is this notion of shifting your normal. It's meant literally go out off your front porch. Yeah, yeah. The travel and the anthropology and these brilliant minds all had to be there mm. for these revolutions. One of the poignant parts of this story is the abiding love between Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict they recognized when they were in their 20s, they were unknown to the world, and their work helped create our world where that love is more possible. Yeah, well, you know, um, Ruth Benedict was Boaz's uh, teaching assistant. She had done a doctorate at, uh, at Columbia a, a bit later in life. She was now, she was what we would call a non-traditional student. Right. She an under, undergraduate degree and then um, got married to a doctor and would have been expected to kind of keep house and keep quiet um, in that kind of household. And then she decided to start taking some classes in New York, eventually joined the graduate program at Columbia and then became the right-hand person uh, to Boaz. And as his teaching assistant, she uh, came across Margaret Mead, who was what we would now call a transfer student. And I love, by the way, that all of these figures fit into categories that we use now, mm -hmm. that, like in a way outsider, <laughs> outsider, outsider categories, um, uh, even in our own moment. I mean, which says so much about the, the categories that we use. But, um, you know, Mead, who had transferred to uh, Barnard, um, fell into this circle. And I think she found a lot of Boaz's ideas and Benedict's ideas to be as re revolutionary as anybody else um, in that circle. Mead was uh, married at the time. She had what she later, much to her ex-husband's dismay, called a student marriage. Um, and, and then, but, but at the same time, fell in love with Benedict, who was also married to a, a, a man. And that had to, of course, be kept quiet. It was a kind of open secret to anyone who, who knew them. But I describe in the book um, the first time when they really, I think, fully make their love known to each other. And it happens to be on this, in this brilliant moment that kind of determines the course of the rest of their lives. They're traveling together across the United States on a train going to the West Coast um, where Benedict is going to the American Southwest to do some work in the Zuni Pueblo that will later form the basis of so much of her research as a practicing anthropologist. And Mead is on her first trip out of the United States. She's going to take a boat to Hawaii and then to American Samoa where she um, completes the research that eventually becomes coming of age in Samoa, which is you know, arguably still the most widely read piece of anthropology ever. Um, but at that time, neither one of them knows that this no. is their life is gonna hold. 
It's very moving. Um, and it's very interesting to me that you shift your normal and see them. One of the things you've mentioned is when you look back at your earlier books, much celebrated, awarded books about Istanbul and Odessa, you realize that your gaze yeah. excluded some people that you might not exclude now. Yeah, well, th this, I have to say, just as a, um, a writer and a person, um, writing this book was a revelation to me because it, I mean, these figures and so many of the ideas and the social science Right. I had grown up with as well. Anybody who goes to graduate school in the social sciences now will encounter these ideas. But in coming at these people and their lives in a fresh way and exercising my own moral empathy as a writer, um, yeah, I discovered that, you know, I had had I really been writing mainly for white men? I mean, kind of imagining that my my readers out there, my audience out there um, belong to that category. And I think, you know, that, that doesn't make me um, any less, I guess, proud in a way of the work that I did because I always included characters from a kind of range of human experiences in the work that, that I did. But in this book in particular, I think it required me um, to become a more empathetic writer, to try to get in the minds of people who were experiencing great hardship, who experienced the world that they were surrounded by as, um, as oppressive and, um, and, and constraining of their um, natural talents and abilities. And to, to kind of see that played out in lives and then to, to write that on a page you know, without at the same time trying to put them in categories, right? Right. Because Mead would not have described herself as gay, for for example, nor would Benedict. And so to try to put some of those labels to one side and to talk just about two people who are deeply in love and who found in that love um, not only a life-transforming connection to another person, but also this incredible font of ideas and um, insights that also then played out on the pages of the books that they wrote. What's so inescapable from Gods of the Upper Air is how the intellectual and the personal are entwined. Mm. You can't disembody them. Yeah. yeah. And I'm really struck by your own love story, which yeah. has also contributed to this book. Yeah, I mean, I had the very good fortune to marry an anthropologist, uh, Maggie Paxson, who um, wrote her own, was writing her own really wonderful and touching book called The Plateau at the same time that I was working on Gods of the Upper Air. And so, you know, if you're writing about anthropologists, having a house anthropologist is a very useful <laughs> thing to have at your um at your disposal, but it, it it was the same kind of thing. I mean, our breakfast table and dinner table, and we end up having our own private seminars in social science and history and, and anthropology and you name it. And those continue. It wasn't just because of the book. Those, those kinds of things continue. But I love, you know, I loved and, and, and love her brain and the way that it tries to make sense of the world. And some portion of that is due to the specific um, 
you know, training and exercises you do as an anthropologist and forcing yourself to go into a place that is very deeply unlike the one where you're comfortable. And, you know, if anything, um, still today, I think that is, to me, the kernel of what anthropology as a discipline has to teach, that that technique of throwing yourself in an unfamiliar place and intentionally making yourself stupid um, not only gives you some real perspective on the people and places you're studying, but perhaps more importantly, shows your own society your, and yourself in a very different and clarifying light. It's such a practice of humility, which yeah. is a spiritual practice from the chair yeah. I sit in. But I'm a student of dedications. And when I read yours for Maggie, who else? I thought, I'm going to like this guy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she was, she, I, I, I feel like I, I spent the last several years with two Margarets, um, mine and Margaret Mead, um, because, uh, in fact, the, the Mead papers at the Library of Congress, which are just a few blocks from where I'm sitting now at home here in Washington, um, they were essential to this project. There are about half a million items in the Margaret Mead papers, which now belong to the people of the United States because of her generosity. And she saved absolutely everything, you know, old um, excused absence notes from school, um, a corset fitters recommendations, um, you know, and then of course her field notes and, and notebooks and from Samoa. I mean, you can, you can hold in your hand the reporter's notebooks that she had in her hand when she was doing the work for coming of age. And, you know, and, and I, I'm a real archive rat. I love doing that kind of thing. And it gives you this immediate sort of smelling it, touching it gives this immediate connection uh, to the people you're writing about. In terms of making things concrete, one of the best things that happened in Annisfield Wolf World last year was the documentary that shows you walking in the place you're describing, the Jefferson Building outside, which is part of the Library of Congress, yeah. which is our temple of knowledge. And there at the front are um, figures, faces, and all the way around the building that set up a racial hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And once you see that, mm -hmm. it's blistered in your mind. Yeah. How did you first see that? Well, I think, um, I mean, I love the Jefferson Building. It's where I've written most of my books, actually. And um, at some point, it simply occurred to me, you know, I would take a sandwich and go out on the lawn and sit in the shadow of this magnificent building in the middle of my, my work day. And as I started, you know, looking up at the building, it occurred to me that there was there was not a, a randomness to the keystones on the second story windows. And of course the, the building itself opened in the 1890s, it's full of statuary. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous inside and out, but that, um, yeah, there's, there's a patterning to how these faces are depicted on the building with people we would now describe as white or of European descent on the front of the building, <clears throat> people of recognizably sort of Asian heritage on the sides and then wrapping around to people of, of, of visibly African or Melanesian uh, background on the back of the building. And, you know, that somehow sitting in a building working on this book where the building itself was a carved in stone representation of the racial hierarchies that the Boaz Circle were trying to dismantle 
um, that was just breathtaking to me. And it was yet another one of these um, uh, moments of awareness that I think um, people across the United States are, are having now. Um, you know, and, and this is where the, the term, you know, the people use with derision the term wokeness um, is absolutely applicable. Yes, it is. It is a waking up. It is a, a seeing a set of things that because of one's background or position or power or just lack of awareness, um, one, one has been unable to see. And that moment is exactly the thing that Boaz and Mead and others wanted people to have. You know, for them, it can happen in your own backyard. Did someone point that out to you, Charles, or did you see that yourself? The patterning, you mean? Of yes. The, oh, no, I think, I think no one ever mentioned it to me. I think it only occurred to me as I started looking. And then, I mean, really, you walk around the building and you take, you take this tour of the racial hierarchy as it was understood at the turn of the century. And now we'll pause for a short break. The Asterix is a project of the Cleveland Foundation to bring more readers and listeners into conversation with the best writers in English. In this case, recipients of the Annisfield Wolf Book Award. We now return to the conversation. Uh, one thing I learned from your book that staggered me and I continue to think about is as we have celebrated ourselves, um, your title comes from Zora Neale Hurston's book yeah. that won an Annisfield Wolf Book Award about 80 years earlier, yeah. Yeah. Dust Tracks on a Road. But what I learned in your book is her book was balderized by the editors who yeah. weren't in the mood for a racially critical text as the country headed back into war. Yeah. When we pick up that book now, is it the, uh, the original edit or is it closer to what she wanted to put into the world? Yeah, so Death Strikes on a Road, her autobiography, as it's published now, has been restored. And so most okay. of the, the versions you would buy will have the deleted chapters either where they originally went or at the back um, of the book. So you can read the text as she um, intended it. But you're exactly right that, um, you know, she was herself, like all of these individuals, a contrarian. And uh, she uh, wondered during the Second World War, you know, was the United States fighting one kind of racial hierarchy in order to preserve another? Um, Amen. And, and simply asking that question was considered a bit too controversial for the, for the readership of the, uh, of the time. But uh, Hurston ends up being kind of the beating heart of my own book, not only from the title itself, in fact, I was going back and forth with the um, publisher for some time about a title, and they were getting more and more nervous as publication, <laughs> you know, date approach, and we don't even have a title, and if you don't have a title, you can't have a cover, and, you know, the dominoes begin to fall. Um, but Maggie and I were actually sitting in our living room, and I was reading out loud to her a section from Dust Tracks on a Road, and she said, there's your title when I came to Gods of the Upper Air. Um, and then I used a little um, uh, snippet from Hurston as an epigraph um, in the book, yeah. where she's talking about, you know, seeing the world from the perspective of on high, if you like. 
and how you begin to understand the essential connectedness of human beings, the categories that seem so important and obvious to you here and now turn out not to be universal. Um, and, you know, Hurston in her own life as a writer, as a novelist, um, and as a social scientist, the part of her identity that I think has not been very well understood. Um, she lived, she lived that truth, um, this throwing yourself into places that are very difficult and very unfamiliar. Um, she did that at every stage of her life. And it's, it's glorious to watch as you read her letters or go through her biography. Um, but what I wanted to do in this book was to connect those experiences with, with her ideas, which are pretty profound. And what she says in that very quote is the experience of it is both sweet and bitter. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think to any, anyone who works as a social scientist or an anthropologist in this kind of way, you know, there are costs to this, you know, um, the relationships, um, in this book often did not survive. The marriages not infrequently yeah. fell. Um, people fell out with each other. And there's, there's a cost to destroying the world as you know it. But um, the hope is that the, the world as you find it turns out to be even more glorious and surprising than you might've imagined. I love that as a former journalist, that finding the world. And you intrigued me by saying that people are obsessed with me, but if you had to pick one of the four to walk out into the world with, it would have been Hurston. Say yeah. more about that. Yeah, well, I think um, not only had she lived this you know, amazing life already by the time she gets to Barnard and she always lied about her age. So by the time she got to Barnard, she was older than your typical um, undergraduate. Um, but, you know, she had worked as a dresser in a Gilbert and Sullivan company. Um, she had, of course, grown up in Jim Crow, Florida, which was its own um, terror and adventure at the same time. Um, she um, uh, had then worked as a waitress at the Cosmos Club um, here in Washington, which had been founded by John Wesley Powell, one of the great um, creators of American ethnography. Um, so, and then, then is, you know, the only African-American student at Barnard at the time. And they, as a result, place her right in the middle of the class photo, although she's trying to hide a little bit behind a tree so she's a little bit difficult to difficult to spot and then you know um begins writing and is at the center of the harlem renaissance at a time when i think mead and benedict couldn't quite see that actually even though mm -hmm. everybody was in columbia and she only had to go um uptown to harlem to be really at the center of parties and literary life and this artistic swirl that was the harlem renaissance um to uh, mead and others she was kind of another graduate student i mean even that you know the the the, the veil of race was even if in among this group of people who were um dedicated to unpacking the concept of race, it was still powerful and had an yes. effect on their lives and how they dealt with colleagues. Yes. And the last time you and I spoke was January 5th. And I remember that because of what happened on your doorstep January 6th. Yeah. And when we chatted, you were mentioning there were helicopters in the air. Yeah. And there had been helicopters in the air through 2020. Mm. And because you and Maggie had lived 
in authoritarian states it was setting off triggers yeah to have this occupation of the air which is mild compared to what unfurled mm. on the 6th we're a few months out from it now but i watched the country turning away from grappling in a lot of respects to what happened with the confederate flag for the first time yeah. paraded in the building and i am keen to know with your political science mind how you're thinking about that day well yes we were here um on uh, january 6th and had been here in the previous summer as well for the fighting uh, around lafayette square and the attack mm -hmm. by, by the police on on protesters and then uh, the the creation of uh, both downtown and then after the sixth here on Capitol Hill of what uh, of a landscape that was so foreign to us here at home, but so familiar to us from traveling in the former Soviet Union or the Balkans or elsewhere. I mean, much of our neighborhood was surrounded by 10 foot fencing and razor wire for months after, you know, January 6th um, with National Guard, you know, every 10 or 12 feet. And, and it was a, a pretty shocking scene that I think many Americans weren't really aware of unless you kind of lived here. Um, but, you know, I think anybody who looks at these events and also reflects on the last four years has to have a kind of bifurcated view of things and in, in a way on, on the one hand, you know, seeing what an American authoritarianism right in your face looks like, um, not the quiet version, but the really loud bullhorn version of American authoritarian politics of racism, um, of this, um, you know, uh, this cult of personality um, that surrounded the former president. On the other hand, I think the country has been through an unprecedented awakening to issues of um, race and privilege and power and how all those things work. In other words, the, exactly the things that the Boaz Circle uh, tried a century ago to, uh, to have people pay attention to. And you know, folks in that circle would have really understood this because they were they were trying to get Americans to think more comparatively, more um, universally about themselves, exactly at a time of anti-immigrant backlash, of um, pro-war boosterism, of, um, you know, of the uh, of the attack on versions of America which didn't look white and Anglo-Saxon. You know, even even the fact that we have the, the resurrection of this word Anglo-Saxon, you know, and that sort of in some of the political discourse these days, Boaz would probably slap his forehead, um, you know, with, with disbelief. And in a way, you know, the entirety of the country's predicament is contained between sort of two phrases that you hear at war with each other a lot these days. And one is this isn't America, you know, that this kind of thing doesn't look like America. It's not the values that the country espouses. And on the other hand, this is America, that it is, um, it actually is part of the history and getting your head around that fact, the braided history of this country, both 1619 and 1776, holding both of those things in your head at once is, I think, the only way to be 
a kind of aware American these days. Um, Lincoln, in, in um, an address to Cong one of his addresses to Congress, um, put it brilliantly. He said, um, the first thing, the first thing Americans must do is to disenthrall themselves, and then we may save our country. And I love that quote because um, he, he was exactly right. And it was a theme that, uh, that Hurston and Boaz and, and, and others would take up later. Disenthrall yourself, you know, take a view from the gods of the upper air and the world will look rather different. I so love the way you're framing it because it's echoing so strongly with Eric Foner, another 2020 recipient for Lifetime Achievement, who is the leading scholar of reconstruction and who startled me by saying he was glad to see the Confederate flag in the Capitol because it made explicit mm -hmm. the value in the heart of the person carrying it. Yeah. And yeah. that this battle, especially on the state level, violent attempts to overthrow legitimate elections is not new to American yeah. history and gave us a lesson on that. And the simultaneous way, the nightmare of authoritarian insurgency sits with Eric's own astonishment in rural white Connecticut where white people were gathering to march about Black Lives Matter. He didn't think yeah. he'd live to see that. Yeah, it's a both right. and. Yeah, and and I think, you know, as, uh, as, as you say, the, I think for many, for many people, the simple making explicit of the reality that so many Americans have lived with throughout the history of this country. You know, it's the same kind of thing with, um, with the ubiquity of, of cell phones and video or of, um, you know, police cameras or of closed circuit television. I mean, these things that can now be made visible um, to a segment of the population that was perfectly happy to ignore these things or, or living in a kind of veiled ignorance um, or willful ignorance of the reality as it was experienced by other, other folks. And, um, you know, this again is a very Boazian idea that you, you know, you have to viscerally be confronted by things. And that may, that may entail, you know, getting yourself on a plane or a ship and going around the world to a society that seems about as different from your own as you can imagine, or, try empathetically to see the world from the perspective of somebody else who happens to be really quite quite close to you. Um, and uh, both of those things for in different ways turn out to be extremely diff difficult. But um, both science and morality, I think, point toward the necessity of doing exactly that. And conscience that we haven't mentioned Ella Deloria, who's the mm -hmm. fourth woman in this quartet yeah. who remade our worldview. Yeah. Do you have a thought about that brings her into the present moment? Well, she is um, a fascinating figure who was studying at uh, Teachers College, another unit of Columbia, when um, in in the twenties when uh, Boaz was there, and she falls into his orbit not as a student really, but as a kind of research assistant when he's doing some work on the languages and cultures of the, of, um, of the plains. And she is a native Dakota speaker and uh, ended up being his critical partner in creating a grammar of the Dakota language, which kind of preserved a way of speech that had been 
uh, buffeted and 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 fought against with the entire power of the United States government for you know for the better part of a century. She, I think, is she plays a couple of different roles in the book, but one of them is um, to demonstrate the way in which even members of the Boaz Circle who were very concerned about um, what they saw as the preservation of cultures and the belief that you know the richness of human society had to be cataloged because it was all disappearing very, very quickly. They were not beyond things that we would now recognize to be horrific practices in pursuing those ends. And you know, you include that in your book with some yeah. incredible examples of yeah. grave robbing and other. Yeah. And there's there's, you know, now we recognize those things to be um, to be deeply dehumanizing, not only of a cadaver, but of the things that are held most dear and most sacred to real living people as well. And so I don't want to, you know, let um, Boaz and Mead or others off the hook in, in this regard. We would now recognize those things to be, to be awful. Um, and Deloria herself is, you know, becomes one of the central figures in the maintenance of and the, the scientific study of folklore and language on the American plains. And she also, she says at one point that she's a figure who stands in the middle, you know, because she had been, of course, educated in New York, but went back and forth um, between Standing Rock and, um, and, and New York City, uh, lived um, at times out of her car. Her last known address was a motel. And um, yet, figures like these who like Hurston, you know, Hurston herself who died in, in, in poverty and, and a fair amount of her work was destroyed in, a, in a, a trash fire when they were cleaning out the place where she lived. You know, for each of these people to me is um, a way of paying tribute to a set of ideas that have in so many ways won out you know, we still struggle over them. Certainly not everyone on the political scene agrees with them, but we have redefined our sense of normal. We've redefined our sense of what an educated person is. We've redefined our sense of what it means to think of yourself as a citizen of the world, for lack of a better phrase. And it is in large part due to the ideas that these folks pioneered. Thank you. The work's unfinished. So what would you, Professor King of Georgetown, tell us, your listeners, to pick up next? Well, I think, um, I think the most important thing, and, and this comes exactly from these, you know, sometimes rather complicated ethnographic studies and scientific ideas and so forth and political theory, but the important everyday takeaway from the Boaz Circle is practice, you know? practice every day this idea of empathy or of trying, you know, of beginning with the idea that the people who seem very, very different from you um, are not, as, as my wife, let me quote my, my other Maggie, um, says all the time, you know, you can't, you can't begin with the idea that people who are different from you are crazy, stupid, or evil. And if, 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 you're, if you're drawn to one of those explanations for why they're behaving <laughs> in the way that they are, um, you just 
stop yourself, you know, stop for a moment and see if there are other ways of doing that, even for people whose ideas might seem ridiculous or abhorrent or evil to you. And that's very, very hard to do. But keep in mind, you know, Mead in suggesting that there might be something in Samoa um, that, that if not worth bringing back to American society, at least that will help you understand why Samoans behave in the way they do, or, uh, or in Papua New Guinea, or on the, in the Pacific Northwest, or, you know, in, in all of these societies, Haiti, Jamaica, where um, Hurston went, in all of these societies, um, there are local tools for understanding reality as it's understood there. You, you are not an expert when you arrive. The experts are the ones who live there, who actually use those tools, intellectual or even material tools, um, all the time. And the hope is that not only will you expand your sense of what humanity is by, by looking at people very, very different from yourself, but you may come to see your own predicament, your own station in life is kind of weird. Um, and in that little insight, I think grows not only one's heart, but also um, one's mind. And um, the, the, it's the union of those two things that morality and science point in exactly the same direction toward the essential unity of human beings. That's, that's the core idea in the book and in their lives. The deep weirdness to um, the destabilization of not having yourself at the center is a practice yeah. and requires some yeah. curiosity. I read Alice yeah. Monroe for that, you know, a Canadian um, Plains woman herself who yeah. got that as did Sherwood Anderson. And it's so interesting to me that these rigorous scientists, Boas being a physicist, yeah. found their way to that insight through that channel yeah. as well. Well, it was all, I mean, it, it was in part because they themselves were all outsiders in one form or another. And, you know, the great insights about life do not come from people who already have power. <laughs> the, great, the great insights from, uh, about life come from the edges. You know, there's a famous line from Toni Morrison where she said, you know, I, I stand at the edge and claim it as the center. Well, that sounds like a perfect note on which to end our conversation, though I'm sad about it because I enjoy being a, one of your students as well. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. And, you know, let me say again how absolutely thrilled I am by this award. And I'm so thankful uh, to you and, and, and the jury and everyone who has made this um, possible. It is deeply moving to me that in, um, in, in receiving the award, it's also another way of honoring Hurston and her legacy and um and thank you for that chance the asterisk is brought to you by the cleveland foundation the executive producer is alan ashby with help from producers tara pringle jefferson and jay williams of wobu radio i'm karen long manager of the prizes thank you for listening <laughs>